Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hello, everyone. How are we today? Well, Bill had a very abrupt hello, hello. <sighs> Look, I mean, these are abrupt times. That's true. <laughs> uh, I, had a, I had a small non-legal news item that I wanted to bat around because this literally happened minutes ago. The uh, Mars rover. Uh, just sure. uh, touched down on the uh, surface of the red planet. Did you see this? Did you hear about this? Heard about doing, that, yes. Doing Jay Leno stuff now. Um, <laughs> more importantly, though, and this is somewhat related to things we talk about on the show, um, it's tweeting. The rover is tweeting. The, ro- uh, the robot itself. Uh, I feel like everything's it says, tweeting. says, uh, I'm safe here on Mars. Perseverance will get you anywhere. Uh, its name is Perseverance, and I have to say, mm. I... I don't approve of this. Uh, this has long been a crusade of mine. I don't like when things that can't like when like not. I, I basically don't like when non-humans tweet. I don't think sports teams should have uh, twitters that go. I'm beyond. mostly I'm mostly just worried for us to figure out that the robot is racist. I mean, yeah, it's well, coming. I, it's I mean, coming in like <laughs> six hours. Listen, well, yeah. I mean, like you say, it, it, it touched down twenty minutes ago. You know, thirty minutes ago. The clock is ticking. Um, Bless up to the to the uh, to the Mars uh, perseverance. So, rover. Alex, do you not like it because it's too like cutesy, or is this like one step away from sentient AI? No, right. not that. It's the first thing. It's uh, it's uh, too cute by half because this is. I assume yeah. this is a NASA social media person. Uh, yeah, I don't care about that. Uh, it's not a Skynet kind of thing. No, I don't think so. But um, what about when a, a, I don't think a so. company? I can't say for sure. <laughs> <laughs> what about when a company like Wendy's is really well known for this, where they will tweet from the corporate account and they'll like roast other companies and like do things that are really, you know, they it, it's again trying to be cute. But in I don't, a funny I don't. I mean, way. there there have been good tweets. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to sit here before <laughs> my friends and coworkers and say that they that no no good tweets have ever come out of this. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just too cute by half for me. I'm I'm just getting very grumpy as I get old. I think this is a great place for us to transition to what we're going to talk about this week. Uh, we have a good show. We're going to talk about Peloton later. Uh, yes. We're going to talk about a a nine hundred dollar nine hundred million dollar goof uh, in a little bit. But yeah, goof. both of but, those but, are good. But first, I want to talk about Big Law because I feel like you know we always have to touch down when something's roiling the industry. Well, that's what I was going to say. We're talking about you know things. That companies do online, and uh, <laughs> and here we are talking about something that Jones Day perhaps didn't do online, which was uh, yeah. prevent this. Yeah, another another bad day for people too. So this week, um, Jones Day, which is a big law giant firm, for anybody who doesn't know, but I think most of our listeners will be well aware of them. Oh yeah, they were hit by a third party data breach, and it's raising a bunch of alarm bells for other law firms too about the vulnerabilities of these outside vendors that firms regularly use. Like you say, a huge firm counts many corporate titans uh, and the former president, Donald Trump, and his lawyers among among its uh, uh, clientele. Um, this is obviously huge news. It obviously it raises a lot of flags in the industry. What exactly happened, though, is that, that sort of um, has people Yeah, talking. so um, hackers attacked a company called Acelion. It's a vendor that Jones Day and some other law firms as well use to transfer files. So Acelion had to go back to Jones Day and tell them that the platform was compromised, that sophisticated hackers had gotten in there and taken a bunch of information. A hacking group later posted what it claimed were some of the documents on the dark web. So the post included screenshots of what looked to be um, 
actual Jones Day documents. They're on letterhead. Some of them are labeled things like confidential mediation brief, and it was addressed to a judge. Another one was a cover letter for what was called uh, enclosed confidential information. So a Law 360 reporter that was writing about this for us um, was able to see these online. But we couldn't immediately confirm that they're legitimate documents. That's a little tougher. But on the face of it, it appears as if they are. And it's a pretty common tactic from cyber criminal groups where if they get a big cache of documents, some treasure trove they think they have, they'll post a few to sort of prove their bona fides. And then they'll go back to the people involved and make any, some kind of demand, some kind of ransom um, request from from companies and law, in this case, law firms. I love any story where we can talk about the dark web. Uh, you That's know, true. It seems <laughs> like a, a mysterious uh, sort of undefined thing. But but yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was a, a pretty bad day uh, for Jones Day. Definitely. I mean, the firm obviously has said they're investigating the extent of this breach. They're looking into it. They're said, they um, said they've talked to any clients they know are already impacted. They've reached out to the authorities to also look into this, which is all the steps you would expect them to take. Yeah. But as Alex said earlier, you know, Jones Day is a big firm. So it's 2,500 attorneys worldwide. It, uh, pres- former President Donald Trump was a client, a ton of Fortune 500 companies. So, you know, we don't know the exact extent of what was compromised here, but it could be some really sensitive things. I mean, there are a lot of high profile targets here. Yeah, I don't know if people know this. Little little inside baseball. Law firms, very sensitive about documents. Uh, <laughs> they they prefer to keep them in-house if possible. But you had sure. said that um, you know, this is a file sharing service that as I understand it is fairly popular among some pretty uh, big law firms. What yeah. is the what 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 are like the ripples uh, around the industry? Yeah, part of the reason I wanted to bring this to everyone's attention is because it does impact a big firm, but it goes beyond just this one firm. So Celion on their website indicates they have at least six other law firms that use the software. We don't know the names of all of them, and it could potentially be even more. That's just sort of the tip of the iceberg that we know about it. Yeah. Um, we don't know exactly who's been impacted by this data breach, but Goodwin Proctor, also another big law firm, recently disclosed internally that some of their clients may have had um, confidential data exposed by a hack of a third-party vendor that the firm uses for large file transfers. So it sounds related to this, although it could hmm. theoretically be a separate vendor, but it just yeah. shows the ubiquity of the potential problem. And then beyond that, it really is a trend law firms are going to be targeted either directly or indirectly through these kind of vendors because they are just such a treasure trove of really sensitive information and also uh, a lot of knowledge about big money transactions that are going on run through um, you know, the work that law firms do. So I yeah. think that's very attractive to hackers. Um, in October, we saw a cyber attack against Safarth Shaw, and that firm had to temporarily shut down some of its systems while it was dealing with that. Um, one of the big immigration powerhouse law firms, Fragomen, said it suffered a data breach um, that compromised some of the personal information of both current and former employees. So we've seen this at a lot of pretty sophisticated firms. And I wanted this one to be um, something all our listeners knew about because I think we're going to see more and more of this kind of action. And it's going to be really interesting to watch what fallout and what steps law firms take to try to prevent this kind of thing. So some pretty rough times for Jones Day right now. And for our next story, I wanted to talk about some rough times for Citibank. Uh, this story, I think a good way to glimpse this story is um, centers on one of the all-time great cards you can draw in the board game Monopoly. And I am, of course, referring to bank error in your favor. 
We sure. all love that one, right? That it, Alex, you know, you've made a lot of segues and a lot of intros to to segments on Pro Se, and that's one of your best. I'm very into this. I mean, I, I furthermore, I love when we when we draw attention to segues, just so everyone knows I, I about how awesome they are. I couldn't Don't help encourage it. It's too good. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway. We love we love the bank we, we love the bank air in your favor card. It's a real jolt. Gives you lifts your spirits when you're playing the game. Um, but imagine for a second if uh, the bank's error got you not a meager two hundred dollars as it is in the board game, but how about almost a billion dollars? Because that's what this story is about. I mean that um, would be that would be nice. Frankly. It would be cool. I mean, yeah, if if that happened to it me personally, yes, yes, um, or any of you, my friends. Um, and people uh, whose company I enjoy. Anyway, uh, Citibank, the Citibank, uh, sent $900 million to a bunch of creditors by complete accident, and to make matter, that's already kind of embarrassing on its face as a sort of respected financial institution, um, but to make matters worse for them, uh, a New York federal judge this week ruled that the bank is basically out of luck to try and get most of that money back. He made uh, sort of an official ruling uh, that amounted to no backsies. So they are on the hook. Uh, or rather, well, they're not on the hook, but they're not going to be able to get this back, at least if this ruling stands. I know when I make errors in my own personal finances, it's usually, you know, no big deal. Just sure, a cool you Venmo the wrong person. billion dollar problem. Um, how, did that, how does that even happen? I mean, it's a bank. What, what went on here? You'd think they'd have a lot of double checks on something like that. Yeah, um, the how of it all is very interesting, um, but I do want to just to sort of situate what's going on and and how sort of how we got here. At the center of this case is this huge dispute over a 2016 loan that was given to the cosmetics giant Revlon, which um, was in sort of dire financial straits. They took on a, like I think of about a 1.8 billion dollar loan in 2016. There's been a whole bunch of litigation between the company. And its creditors and Citibank, which is basically serving as like an administrator between the two parties. It's all there's lots of tendrils and there's still lots of disputes going on. But for the purposes of this case, um, all you need to know is that in August, Citi intended to make a very small interest payment to, on Revlon's behalf to some of these creditors. Um, and instead of making a small interest payment, they paid out the loan in full to these creditors to the tune of about $900 million. So um, the next day, the very next day, um, or, or within the same day, actually, the bank notified and said, hey, uh, we didn't mean to do that. And they asked for the money back. <laughs> now, now, some of the creditors uh, actually did return the money, which I thought was interesting. Uh, we, we can talk about that a little bit later. But about 10 of the lenders refused, and it left the parties to litigate over roughly about $500 million in outstanding payments that the bank says that it made in error. So you had them basically it quickly saying they made a huge mistake giving out nearly a billion dollars, asking for it, asking for it back. And many of the companies or many of the lenders saying uh, no, because I enjoy when you give me nine figure payouts. So, yeah. OK, so clearly City wanted its money back. Uh, but I mean, what, what exactly is sort of the, the legal argument here? And what did the judge say about what they they asked for? Got a pretty clear answer uh, from the judge, um, who the, the the judge himself called it uh, sort of un just just unprompted in his own writing one of the biggest blunders in banking history. Which uh, without <laughs> without the historical record of banking blunders in front of me, I'd say it probably ranks pretty high up there. Um, 
But um, the lenders can keep their money. That is the upshot of the opinion. He said city is out of luck. The judge is uh, against New York federal judge named Jesse Furman. It's a hundred page opinion that um, is actually very interesting that walks through all the relevant case law here. But what you need to know is that, you know, it's while it's generally true that you can't keep money that is given to you by mistake, there are exceptions for when that money is um, is in the amount of an actual debt that is owed to you mm-hmm. and whether you had reason to think that the payment was not erroneous, that it was just that it was given to you because it's it's money that you owe. And the judge basically said that both of those conditions that I laid out apply in the case um, of these lenders. Here was uh, the, the pretty sort of neat quote that sums it up. To believe that Citibank, one of the most sophisticated financial institutions in the world, had made a mistake that had never happened before to the tune of nearly $1 billion would have been borderline irrational. Accordingly, the court holds that the August 11th wire transfers at issue were final and complete transactions not subject to revocation, which is, to my reading, a very polite way of saying, look, the lenders had no reason to think you would ever be so foolish as to mistakenly wire them nearly a billion dollars. That is sort of the that is the extent of the of the legal analysis. But it's it's interesting because it's it's not as though I I was being kind of casual when I said when I made the the comparison to the bank error in your favor card. But this instance, it's not as though they just gave them nine hundred million dollars as a complete like out of nowhere payment. Right, it, it was owed money. to them. It was owed to them eventually. It is owed it is undisputed that they are owed this money. The dispute is over, you know, how long it takes and under what conditions and the interest rates and all of this stuff. That stuff is all, you know, being litigated, but it's true that they are owed this sum of money, and the judge is saying if money is owed to you and you receive a payment and you and it's and it's from the company or it's from the institution that is facilitating the payments, you have a reasonable inference to make here that the, that that the payment is yours. So that's about the extent of it. Yeah, that all makes sense. But I'm still left with wondering, uh, <laughs> how did this happen exactly? I mean, yeah. because, I mean, even the judge says, like, yeah, uh, people receiving this money thought that you're a sophisticated giant bank. You wouldn't have made a mistake. And I, too, yeah. would assume that. So what happened here? Yeah. Um, again, I would I would refer people to the... Um, to the entire uh, opinion, because there isn't really one smoking gun here, as you might guess. I mean, it was kind of a, a, a what's the opposite of a Rube, a Rube Goldberg machine, where a lot of things happen and then something bad happens, because that's kind of what <laughs> happened here. There were several small institutional failures from like, there's several pages talking about like this very wonky software interface that they use, lower level employees kind of not being properly trained. Uh, there was a contractor at one point who literally just clicked the wrong box on a form that is used to make payments like this. A constellation that, of screw-ups. Yeah, I mean, if, if one of those things had happened and everything else went fine, somebody probably would have caught it. But in the aggregate, it led to this enormous screw-up. Um, so would refer people to read it uh, at length. Um, great story by our own John Hill on this that dives a little deeper. Um, however... Uh, one of my favorite parts of the opinion comes several pages deep, and it puts on the record uh, these in-office chat logs from the lenders the day, um, or it, well, after they received the payments and learned that City was trying to claw the money back. And frankly, the group chat was blowing up, uh, like mine does, like like when the Cubs do something stupid. Um, <laughs> Here are a couple highlights from that. These are all just like selected quotes from the people who work at some of these at some of these uh, asset management firms who are lenders. 
that were that were reacting to this basically in real time at work. Uh, a couple quotes. I feel really bad for the person that fat fingered a nine hundred million dollar erroneous payment. Not a great career move. <laughs> uh, another one. How was work today, honey? It was okay, except I accidentally sent nine hundred million dollars out to people who weren't supposed to have it. <laughs> Uh, another one. Uh, here's here's a real sign of the times. Downside of working from home. Maybe the dog hit the keyboard. Sounds <laughs> so, sounds reasonable to me. Wait, and now then, were these were yeah. these people were these on the city side or were these on the the receivers? No, these are the lenders who are learning that they got this payment and that city is frantically trying. So yeah, they are they are lighthearted about. <laughs> they this. are thrilled. <laughs> oh yeah, they're, right? they're thrilled. There's like there's one that's like uh, they paid it all back. In full. Uh, now they don't want to. Uh, but uh, here's the other one, and this is this is wild to see. Someone someone just titled. <laughs> someone just wrote the song "Had a Bad Day" playing in the background, which is a which is a Daniel Powder reference in the year 2020. You really don't see that too much. Deep cut. Um, so anyway, uh, really colorful case. Lots of interesting angles. As you can imagine, since there's a $500 million at stake, Citibank will be appealing and it will be very interested to see what the appeals court says. Um, but a, uh, a tumultuous time, uh, there over at Citibank. Cause you had a bad day, you take it one down, you sing a sad song just to For our next story, we are we're going to talk about spin classes. Now, many of our listeners have no doubt uh, taken a spin class before, whether that means digitally at home on a Peloton or you know during the before times uh, at a at their gym or at a Soul Cycle or whatever. Except, hold on, those aren't actually spin classes, at least not in strictly legal terms. Oh uh, no. What are you? You're such a buzzkill with these stories. It's not a spin class. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, many people don't know it, but the the term spin, uh, capital S spin, uh, is a registered trademark of one company called hmm. Mad Dog Athletics, and they've been pretty aggressive in how they <laughs> tell people that fact that the, that that, <laughs> that it is actually a protected term and not just a generic term. Um, but now Peloton, who I mentioned earlier, uh, they've decided to take something of a stand and they launched a big case this week aiming to liberate the term for all, for all to use, to, to let everyone use the term spin and spinning to their heart's delight. So um, it's a very interesting case that I wrote about this week. So let's get into it. Okay, so I've I've never heard of Mad Dog Athletics. I had no idea that it, there was a difference with a capital S spin. <laughs> um, what? What's going on here? This seems like a generic. The wheels term spin today. around. Uh, what else? <laughs> yeah, what, what else could there yeah, be? It's uh, very yeah, obviously I mean, what's happening. I mean, a lot of people sort of see it that way, but you know, so there's this company called Mad Dog Athletics, based in um, uh, in California, that claims to have coined this phrase as um, for its 
own indoor stationary bikes and the classes that you do with it. They sell a line of spinning bikes under the name. They license it out to official spinning classes. And um, they say they've been using the name since the 1980s. And more importantly, they've had it registered as a federal trademark since the 1990s. As we've already alluded to a few times, a lot of people don't understand the term as a trademark. In, in common usage, a spin class is often just a thing yeah. that people say in a generic way to mean an indoor cycling class at their gym or wherever. Um, this is a phenomenon that's known in trademark law as genericide, which is a fun one to say. Uh, I'll say that's, yeah, I'll say that, that, that's got good mouthfeel, as you would say. It's genericide. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's, so that's when a brand becomes so popular that people just start calling the product that yeah. thing. It becomes synonymous with a brand. Aspirin, thermos, trampoline. These were all, at one point, trademarks uh, that mm-hmm. you know only one company could use. But they became so popular that people just started referring to you know a thing that you kept your, your hot coffee in as a thermos. And then eventually people didn't you know associate that with one company. And it you know, it had succumbed to genericide. I've always I mean, thought this was really ironic where it's like your product is so ubiquitous in the good. culture that you're too good and you lose your trademark rights there. <laughs> you think a thing you hear trademark attorneys say a lot is that they are a victim of their own success, that you create yeah. something so innovative and so market leading, often with a unique name that, um, you know, it is some it is the only way people know it is through you. Um, it often happens when things are patent protected early on because you yeah. know you, you literally can be the only one selling it. So then so it's you know, it's an interesting IP sort of quandary that companies have to deal with. But obviously companies that are experiencing this don't love it. And you see all the time, you'll hear in commercials for like Band-Aid or Kleenex or whatever, they'll say very clearly. Kleenex brand facial tissue or, yeah. you know, Band-Aid brand bandages because they want you to not associate that word with the actual item. They want you to associate it with the brand. So, Band-Aid, put it in the jingle. I'm stuck yeah, exactly. on Band-Aid brand because Band-Aid's stuck on me. Uh, right. And and we yeah. saw there was a, a funny video that came out a couple of years ago. Velcro is another one of these ones that's, you know, mm. a very borderline case. A lot of people think it's a generic, but it's still owned by a company. They put out a video a couple of years ago that that was uh, sort of a funny thing with their lawyers telling people to do this. So there are yeah. ways to, to push back on this. Mad Dog's way of pushing back on this was, you know, doing some of that stuff, but also very aggressively sending cease and desists to a lot of mm-hmm. people. And so in the, over the last 10 years, as spinning became this sort of, you know, genericized phenomenon, if you mentioned that word in, you know, in, in media coverage, in advertising your own gym, in any sort of way, you're probably going to hear about it from Mad Dog. Um, that meant telling, you know, gyms not to do this, but it also meant, you know, in a, it meant telling they would go after people like fitness journalists who used it in stories. They would send a letter saying, you're doing this wrong. You're using our name incorrectly. So um, one of the founders of the company is quoted a few years back um, in a in a media appearance saying that they spent nearly a million dollars trying to do this stuff, trying to fight back and, you know, police the use of their trademark to try to stem the tide of people using it generically. So here specifically, we're talking not about those journalist who got pushed back, although that's a really interesting development that's part of this story, but we're actually talking about Peloton, and I presume they'd been pretty careful about not using the word spin, so what's changed here for them? Yeah, I mean, Peloton probably doesn't need much of an introduction anymore. I mean, the company's booming uh, amid the pandemic. People, you know, they are sort of a market leader for 
uh, cutting edge home exercise equipment. You can watch these spin classes, these cycling classes uh, in your from the comfort of your home. And, you know, so they've done very well for themselves over the last year. You can like, torment your wife uh, by uh, forcing her to take Peloton glass. No, I'm kidding. I learned um, that from a very important commercial. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they, as you mentioned, Amber, they have for the most part avoided calling their service a, a spinning bike or a spin class or whatever because of Mad Dog's claims to own this term. But in December, Mad Dog sent a, uh, a takedown notice to Peloton over a YouTube video in which a group of Peloton users uh, referred to themselves as the spin docs. Um, and so apparently that was the last straw for Peloton because the company went totally ballistic this week and and filed four different extremely strongly worded petitions at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office seeking to void uh, Mad Dog's control over the term to cancel their trademark registrations and prove what we've been talking about, that this term has moved closer and closer to the line of of becoming just a generic common term. So you said these were strongly worded. What exactly did they include in these four letters? Yeah, sometimes when you read the, these trademark filings, they aren't the flashiest thing. But that is not the case here. Um, in a nutshell, they they say basically that, that Mad Dog has spent years sending a large number of bogus, you know, sort of um, baseless threat letters to maintain what is essentially an unfair monopoly over a word that should be free for everyone to use, that should be considered a generic term. Uh, the the quote that, that I pulled out from, from the filing was this, quote, enough is enough. It is time to put a stop to Mad Dog's tactic of profiting by threatening competitors, marketplaces, and even journalists with enforcement of generic trademarks. Um, so, you know, a lot of that is sort of just window dressing. I mean, the, the real claim here is that this is a generic term. Uh, I think they probably could have gone about that in a little less of a flashy way. But, um, you know, that that stuff to them is sort of the reason why they are doing this. Um, and but in terms of that, le- that actual sort of substantive legal argument, they're saying mm-hmm. that it's clearly a generic term at this point, that it, they pointed to media coverage by the New York Times, by the Wall Street Journal, by Bloomberg, lots of different outlets that had used this term generically as evidence that, that you know, it is understood generically. And they, they also pointed to all sorts of widespread use by just regular consumers. Another good quote, even five minutes of simple Google searching reveal that everyone in the world other than Mad Dog, understands that that spin and spinning are generic terms. Peloton later added, quote, Mad Dog should no longer be able to intimidate the world into avoiding these commonplace generic terms to accurately describe their bikes and classes. I sort of love how we tip over here from, um, you know, into, into what trademarks are for, and it's all about market confusion. So first, you don't want to be confused with other people using your unique trademark. But if you're too successful and it becomes too ubiquitous, now the market's confused in a whole new way where everyone thinks spin is generic. So how can you keep that trademark? It's a really interesting sort of thought exercise there. Yeah, it's it's definitely, um, I think if you talk to an academic or someone who writes about the issue of genericide, I think what they would tell you is that at, at the point where a word is that popular and that ubiquitous, the person who is claiming control of it, you know, can sort of get two benefits, right? Because it's a term that no longer that that has this widespread usage and and you know, everyone associates it with this whole sort of 
genus of, of product for you to try to then control that you're getting the benefit of a term that everyone just understands to be everything, but you're also mm. claiming exclusive rights to it. It's sort of, yeah. it's sort of double dipping in terms of, uh, you know, you're getting, you're getting your cake and you're getting to eat it too. If they're being so aggressive about enforcing their rights to this word, I guess the law of averages would tell you that, I mean, I, for, for the most part, like you say, they've been successful doing that, but the law of averages might say that if you do it for long enough, you're going to run into a more substantive fight. Is it is it is the is the thinking here that they just maybe picked a fight with the wrong person or the wrong company going after Peloton like this? Is there is there a little more heft behind this one than yeah uh, than it's other i think times. Th- i think the, i think that level the sort of strategic you know beyond the merits kind of legal consideration of how you litigate and how you exist as a company in the yeah. legal world i think is a very interesting angle here we should note that uh mad dog sued peloton for patent infringement in december separate case doesn't involve these but mm. you know that is something to consider here that you know perhaps peloton went out and found an angle to then go after mad dog in a different way um so you gotta you gotta factor that in when you're thinking about this but but yeah i mean talking to trademark attorneys about this case this week the vibe i got was why like if you have a trademark like this, if you are Band-Aid or Popsicle or any of these other cases where you're moving closer and closer to that line, mm-hmm. you really got to be careful not to put yourself in a position where someone is going to feel the need to fight back enough to actually get a court to rule that you no longer have any trademark rights to that word. Um, you know, if you go super aggressive, particularly against a well-funded adversary like Peloton, yeah. who has a great reason to fight back and they have the money to fight back. You're going to find yourself in a tricky situation, and 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 that could be what Mad Dog is facing here. They have an opponent who has a real interest in, you know, proving and paying up to prove that you no longer have have any rights to this word. in our show is something offbeat and Alex I think you're going to take point with the story for us today we got more misadventures in zoom court uh, this week a California judge had a uh, had, had kind of a light like a light-hearted rebuke uh, with an attorney of, of an attorney who had uh, neglected to wear a tie during his court appearance um, it's this uh, again. This happened. Uh, the 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 order of the day. This was a California case. The order of the day was putting the finishing touches on uh, a settlement on, on a securities class action settlement. Uh, that's not really that that interesting. Um, the the attorney we're talking about here is a man named David Preeb, and he had sort of a a, a lavish. Uh, um, background, a Zoom background on, and we know how treacherous that can be. We'll talk about sure. that in a second. Uh, and the judge who uh, was hearing the case was a, 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 a judge named Edward Davila. He asked him if he was at a resort, <laughs> sort of alluding to the background. Mm-hmm. And, they, and the attorney said uh, he was using a, a Zoom filter called Mount Vesuvius. And the judge said uh, they don't wear ties at Mount Vesuvius because the guy wasn't wearing a tie, and it kind of set off this like uh, a little bit of a tense and, and, and embarrassing exchange for the attorney. So, I mean, 
I get where the judge is coming from here, but didn't we talk on Pro Se um, earlier in the pandemic that some courts had judges that had to say things to people like, hey, you've got to wear, you know, a shirt on your Zoom call. <laughs> and and there was one where it was like, yeah, you can't be in your bed doing this hearing. Yeah, so, you're making progress. Yeah, it does seem like a different kind of tipping point we've hit in the, uh, in the Zoom court scenario yeah and this is like you you know it's a little it's it's not as severe i mean i different judges might see it differently i mean this judge clearly is of the opinion um that you should wear a tie if you're appearing before him um which is not am i am i am i correct that i I thought i read in the coverage that the the judge demanded that he go put on a tie and he tied it in front of everyone on the zoom because that gives me the deepest, deepest anxiety as a as a guy who went to public school all throughout. I mean, I know some of the people who went to private school can, you know, can tie those things real quick. But, uh, you know, I've never worn a tie regularly as an adult. Look, I can do it. Don't get yeah. me wrong. But I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. I'm not doing any double Windsors or, uh, you know, any of the the more the more elaborate tying. I, I'm just I... going with the regular kind. I feel the same way because that, that's absolutely what happened. The guy he asked, he basically asked him to go put one on he stood up came back tied it in front of everyone and I, I'm, I'm in the same boat you know I can I, I can stand there in the box and like hit a few out but like if somebody's watching me when the lights are on I mean I sure. don't know I, it would probably take me a time or two although if you're only seeing here and I'm not so worried about the length I bet I could I bet I could bang out a decent knot on the first try um amber and tie this, takes do you have amber, any? go okay <laughs> so here's what I'm thinking and this is not where you're expecting me to go with this but Usually when you hear about problems with appearance and attire and judges being snarky about something, it's because they have some kind of animus against female attorneys and they're giving them a hard time about their outfits. So there is part of me that really loves that as a woman, I will never have to deal with a tie. Thrilled about that. I, uh... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm certainly on board with that. I'm not I'm not like anti I'm I'm not anti um, <laughs> I'm not against ties. Um, I just think like I think that the list of acti- the, the list of events that necessitate a tie should be much smaller. Uh, Bill, you and I have talked about this before. Like, if we go to cover something, you go to a conference. I feel like all the and this is more of like a journalist thing, but like mm-hmm. I feel like the professional class is out there wearing ties, and I almost like as a as a symbol of protest, don't wear a tie when I go. I, like, I wear my shirt. Tuck, tuck I typically in, like when know. I'm when I'm in court to when I'm when I'm sitting there. I, I want to be distinguished as a yes. you know as a as a reporter and not as some sort of like paralegal sitting back there. Um, you know, so I kind of I kind of like that. When yes. I took the Virginia bar exam, um, they required that you dress in courtroom attire to take the bar oh that's so that's, the idea that a judge would even in this context of zoom where i think a lot of industries have gone way more casual the idea that a judge would hold on to like no zoom or not this is courtroom attire that makes so much sense to me because taking that bar in a suit was a real low point in my life Oof, I feel yeah like. i don't <laughs> I, I don't envy you on that but you know uh Norms are being adopted as we head into year two of the pandemic soon and all of that. And if we've if we've if we've traversed from being told we have to wear pants to now just a gentle reminder that you should wear a tie, you know, I'll uh, I'll consider that progress. So next week when we record the show, I'm expecting you guys to show up with your ties on. Absolutely not. Uh, But uh, (laughs) we can talk about that off air if you want. (laughs) Well, great. Thanks for being with me, regardless of whether or not you're wearing a tie. Thanks a lot for bringing that story, Alex. Thank you. 
and Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, John Hill, Ben Kochman, and Dorothy Atkins. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. It's where you can find all the stories we've talked about. And please rate us and leave a review. It helps other people find our show. Thanks and see you again next week.